Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. All right, Genesis 18. So if you've been here this uh, over the past two months, we've been going through the story of Abraham. And the story of Abraham starts in Genesis 11, with Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is actually a historical place. It was actually a pretty big city in the ancient world. Um, and he goes up to Haran in the north of Mesopotamia. And while he's in Haran, Abraham receives this call to go to Canaan, where God will make him the father of a great nation, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham. Abraham is given the promise of land and family. And then over the last six chapters, we've seen this promise continually tested, right? First, there's a famine, and then there's a war, and then there's the tragedy of Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. And all throughout, God keeps confirming to Abraham this promise. You will have a son and a family, and you will receive the land. And more time goes on, and by the time we get to Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah have actually been in the land for 25 years. And our passage for today is actually part of a larger passage, right? There's one narrative story that goes all the way from the beginning of 18 to the end of 19. Um, So anyone who was here last week, do you remember what happened last week on the front half of Genesis 18? If you remember what happens is Abraham and Sarah are kicking it. They're in their tents doing whatever it is they do in the middle of the day uh, under the great oaks of Mamre, or however you pronounce it. I've never heard anybody say it out loud. Um... (laughs) And three strangers show up in the heat of the day. That's what the NIV says, in the heat of the day. So somewhere around noontime or whatever, in the afternoon. And this is actually important. They arrive, three visitors, in the heat of the day. How does Abraham treat these visitors? Does anyone remember? He hurries to be hospitable to them. Yeah, he goes out and he bows down to them and he receives them in honor. He invites them in and he gives them water to wash their feet. And he has Sarah bake some bread for them. And he tells his servants to go grab the fattened calf and prepare it. And he gives them curds and milk and prepares this great feast for them. And this is actually important. So there's actually a, a traditional story that went around in the ancient world that people would tell of the gods coming to visit people. And they would go in disguise to various cities. And if they were received well... They would give blessings to the city, and if they were received poorly, they would bring curses on the city. So what we have here is essentially our Old Testament version of this. And so when they three anonymous visitors show up at Abraham's tent, how are they received? A plus, right? Like Abraham and Sarah get an A plus, they do great, and Abraham receives the blessings of God. Now, we did not read Genesis 19. But I'm assuming you do not have to be a Bible scholar to know. When these, three, when these visitors, two of them, will go to Sodom, how are they received? Yeah, F minus, 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 right? Whatever the lowest possible grade you can possibly get, they receive an F minus. And the city of Sodom is destroyed. So I'll let Scotty spend more time on Sodom next week. But again, if you want to know why Sodom is destroyed, it actually is a ton to do with hospitality. And that only kind of comes out if you read all of 18 and 19 together. So that's kind of the the pieces of bread around our meat for this morning. But it is kind of neat to see that whole thing come together. And it's important to realize, of course, that like we hospitality, I think, in our culture is kind of like this folksy cracker barrel type thing, right? Like, oh, hospitality, have some sweet tea or whatever. 
But in the ancient world, I right? like it's it's kind of considered like it's a folksy thing to do, but not really like something we talk about as like a but in the ancient world there weren't hotels and there weren't police. So hospitality is actually a matter of life and death. If you were on the road, how you were received in a town might make the difference between whether you're given curds and milk and a fat calf or you show up in Sodom and they try and, well, do horrible things to you. Um, so Abraham passes. Abraham does well. And he receives the blessings of God. And that sets up our story uh, for today. So three visitors arrive, two of them depart. Abraham is left with the Lord. I don't quite know how that works, but thus are the mysteries of Genesis. Um, The two of them go, and they go to do essentially a recon on Sodom. Um, Verses 20 and 21 says that the Lord said that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous that I will go down to see what they have done. Is, is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So the two visitors leave and they go down towards Sodom and Abraham is left standing before the Lord. And then they have this dialogue, this very famous dialogue that goes on. And it's actually worth kind of reading in full again. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. Um, then Abraham approached the Lord and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? What is Abraham asking? He's saying, is is God just? When God destroys, is he arbitrary? Does God care about collateral damage? Is God awake to injustice? Fundamental questions about God and justice and the nature of the universe. And then this dialogue continues, right? For 50 people, God says he will spare the city. What about for 40? Again, God will spare the city. What about for 30? What about for 20? God will spare the city. And finally we get down. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more. What if only 10 can be found there? And the Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. All right, so I'm going to be honest with you guys. There's some passages I sit down with and 10 minutes later I know exactly what I want to talk about. And then there's others I just circle on throughout the week, and I wish I had, like, three more days to kind of, like, fully flesh out what I think God wants to speak to it. This is one of the latter ones. There's a lot here, and there's a lot that I was chewing on, and the further I got into it, the the more I was like, I don't know what that means or how that goes or where that leads us. So you're going to get where I ended up yesterday. And that's where we're going to enter in, and we're going to go to that place. And if we have some time at the end, we'll have some time that you guys can feed back and tell me I'm dead wrong, or maybe I need to see something further, or whatever. But I think there's something powerful here, and I'm going to try and pull it apart. And if nothing else, as Scotty would say, if there's nothing else you get from this week, know that the heart of God is to restore all things. The 
that the heart of God is to restore all things. Amen? Okay. So there's two pieces to this, two sides to this story. And the first one is the fun one. So Kyle, if you want to keep going. Sorry, I have a couple slides in here we didn't get to. So keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> the judgment of God. Who, who likes talking about the judgment of God? Woot. Yes, we get one solitary woot from the crowd. The judgment of God, the wrath of God. How many of us would like to leave this topic behind in favor of only talking about the love of God? Sometimes that feels kind of nice, right? Like that, and sometimes we even talk about it like the Old Testament's the wrath of God, and the New Testament's the love of God. And we're New Testament people, so we only talk about the love of God. And here's what we miss when we do that. The judgment of God is really good news. And the reason for that is it means God cares. It means that when God sees suffering, when God sees injustice, when God sees oppression and violence, God doesn't shrug. God doesn't say, cool. Right? When God sees us exploiting and hurting and lying and stealing to one another, God cares. That God is actually a good parent who, when he sees one sibling brutalizing another, he doesn't just stand off and say, hey, I love you both. It's cool. God steps in. And that's a good thing, right? And while the wrath of God is never a fun thing to fall under, sometimes it's a very necessary thing for the healing of humanity. So I want to go with me for a second. I want you to imagine a pastor, right? Imagine a young pastor who truly loves God and he's charismatic and he's good at what he does. And over time, his church grows large. But as his church grows large, he grows more and more corrupt. And he begins embezzling from the church bank account and sleeping around with women in the church and abusing anyone who questions his authority. And over time, he grows more and more corrupt. And this faith that he once has become more and more performative and hollow and empty. Until one day, he is found out. A light is shining on all his sins, and all that is hidden is revealed. And he's fired, and he loses his marriage, and he loses his title, and his standing, and his credibility, and he is left alone with nothing but himself and God. Is this good news? Kind of, right? Maybe good news isn't the right word. I don't know. Um, but, what position you're in, basically. Yeah. It's not fun news, but what is broken is being set right, and what is false is being made true, and what is corrupt is being just destroyed. And while I kind of told that story through the lens of the pastor, to those who have been used and abused, this is freedom, right? The oppressor has fallen. And this is why Revelation can declare with joy, right? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It's good news when Babylon falls, when the systems of oppression fall. It's good news when Pharaoh goes into the Red Sea. And it's good news when American slavery breaks. The wrath of God brings freedom for the oppressed. Amen? And if we go back to our pastor, even in that low point, maybe you envision him in that studio apartment all alone with just him and God. No title, no power, no authority. That's actually the fertile ground to be made new. 
And that faith that he once had can be reborn in that place and he can be restored to his full humanity. And so as we'll see in our next chapter, Sodom needs to come under the judgment of God. It's too far gone, too corrupt. God agrees that if there are even 10 righteous people in the entire city, the city will be saved. And there are not. And Sodom is destroyed. So we might not like the wrath of God, we might not like using those words, but actually every time we pray things like, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for the day of the Lord, right? We're actually praying for God's kingdom to come and to restore all things and to make all things new. And that means evil and injustice and oppression are thrown into the lake of fire. And we sing with delight, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So again, it might be a part of our faith we don't like to dwell on, but you can probably think of some organizations or institutions in our country that don't need the comfort of God. Right? That don't need the gentle whispers of God that say, like, hey, it's okay. Things that are proud and powerful and use that power to destroy others. It's good that God does not shrug at that. fact, in some ways, we should long for the fire of God to come. And it's okay for us to pray for that. The Psalms give us a lot of permission to pray for that. But this actually matters. I think we pray for that to come, for the fire of God to come, not to swell our anger and swell our outrage, but actually to release it to God. We give it to God and say, God, this is your job. This is your, your judgment. This is your fire. And we give it to God actually so we can carry out our Christian calling to love our enemies. That is part of what we do. We release that rage to God so that we can begin to love. And that's always so important to remember that Sodom is always God's job, never ours. That's like hard and fast rule. If you can find the exception, I'm not sure I want to know it. Like hard and fast rule, Sodom is always God's job, not ours. If anybody ever tells you it's our job to destroy another human being in the name of Jesus, like, no. No, that is God's job. We can pray for it. But again, it is a release. It is releasing that to God. And our job is to love. To love our neighbor and love our enemies. Amen. So we can pray for the fire of God to fall. The prophets also tell us to be careful of this because, of course, the fire of God might fall on us as well. And you can probably think of some things in yourself that don't need the gentle whisper of God, right? Places you don't need to be comforted. Places that need the fire of God to come and wash them away. Broken things within yourself that destroy yourself and others. Things that oppress and abuse. Things within you that bring death to yourself and others. Maybe this isn't bad news. Maybe you need the fire of God to come.
So I invite you to reflect on that. Where do we need the fire of God to fall? And lastly, I invite you to remember that this judgment of God is not because God is crazy. Sometimes it's portrayed that way, or that God is just an inherently angry God, especially in the Old Testament, or God is hateful, or God's honor is hurt by sin. That's like this medieval idea that God is so holy that his wrath has to be poured out on sin. God's wrath does not have to be poured out on sin. God's wrath comes because God is a good father. It's because Abel's blood cries out from the ground. It's because the Israelite children groan in slavery. It's because the outcry against Sodom is so great. It's not because God is approved, right? It's because God is a good dad. And when his children cry out, he will come to make things right. This is the God we worship. He is a holy God. And when his children cry out, he doesn't shrug. And that's good news. Amen? Okay, how's everybody doing? Now that we've gone neck deep into the wrath of God, there is another side to this story. And this is kind of a hard left turn. Kind of. What Genesis 18 tells us is that what happens to Sodom is always plan B. What happens to Sodom is always plan B. Because if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, what will God do? God will save the city. And if there are 40 righteous people in Sodom, what will God do? And if there are 30 righteous people, what will God do? And 20? And if there are 10 Just ten righteous people in the city. God will come and begin to make things new. And this tells us that the the heart of God is always to redeem, not to destroy. And if God can find the smallest faith within us, God will shower us with his love until we are made new. God doesn't need a righteous city in order to work. God doesn't need a, a city full of righteous people to show up and give his love. How many people does God need? Ten. Ten righteous people, and that's it. And God will come and begin to do powerful things. God needs a mustard seed to move mountains, right? God needs an ember to start a forest fire. God needs the smallest prick of light to break the power of darkness. God needs a thief on the cross to show the smallest bit of humility. And God will show up to save We sometimes talk about the Old Testament as this book of wrath and the New Testament as a book of grace. But here we have all the way back in Genesis 18, the heart of God is not to destroy, but to save. And this is what we see if we read the story of Israel, right? When Israel begins to betray her calling and to steal and kill and destroy just like every other nation. And Israel actually begins to become Sodom. We see that in the book of Judges. The prophets show up and say, turn around. And Elijah shows up and says, turn around. And Isaiah shows up and says, turn around. And Micah shows up and says, turn around. And God says, my beloved daughter, my beloved child, just come home. If there are only ten people, 
If that's it, just show me the smallest little bit of faith. So when finally Israel goes into exile and Jerusalem is destroyed, the prophets will say, we were Sodom. There were not even ten righteous people in the city. And so Israel is destroyed and sent into exile. Because only there can she be reborn. And that's just what will happen. Israel goes into exile and is actually reborn into something entirely new. Something fuller and deeper than she ever was before. But this is what God says over and over throughout the Old Testament. Just give me ten people and I can make the whole city new. I've been thinking about this dynamic very personally this month. We've been dealing with a particularly toxic situation on our block. And you know what I want God to do? Fix it. Go Sodom on it. Just make the thing go away, right? Take it away. Take what is broken and crush it. Drop the fire of God. And as I've prayed for that, I find that God keeps saying back to me, find the light. Find the goodness. Find the image of God in this very broken person and work for their redemption. Find the sliver of hope. See what brokenness and humility are there and fan the flames of the ember until healing comes. And there may come a time, right, when the best thing for that person is to lose it all and to go into exile and to have to hit rock bottom. But as the Old Testament says, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God will search out the city for ten righteous people before he ever gives it over to destruction. So perhaps you have similar situations in your life where all you want is Sodom and God is telling you, seek out the ten. Find that sliver of hope, that spark of faith, that flickering image of God still alive in that soul. That little piece of the image of God buried under the rubble. What would it look like to long for their redemption? To plead with God, even God, if there's only ten, please save the city. Genesis 18 tells us that this is a prayer that God hears. What would it look like in the places you have given up hope to seek out the ten? And that's where I ended up yesterday. These things hold in tension with each other, and I'm not 100% sure how, and if you gave me another three days, I might be able to conclude this whole thing a a little better. I know sometimes we need Sodom, right? And that's a hard thing to hear, but sometimes the thing Israel needs to go into exile, sometimes the fire of God needs to come. And sometimes I know that God can take the smallest sliver of light and turn it into a noonday sun. I know somehow these things come together in the cross. I haven't quite figured out the math of that just yet. I'll let you know. I'll post something on Wednesday that lets you know. 
But if nothing else, the good news of the cross that comes with this is that even when we fall under the wrath of God, resurrection is still a thing. The broken pastor can live, the nation in exile can be reborn, the driest of dry bones can put on flesh again. And even Sodom, right? Some people think the Sodom story exists to explain why that area around the Dead Sea is so barren and so dry and so dead. But just this morning, I was reflecting on it. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, there's actually this powerful vision of a river coming out of the restored temple and flowing out of the temple and out of Jerusalem. And if you know your geography, down to the Dead Sea. And when the river of life reaches the Dead Sea, you know what it does? It makes it come alive. The Dead Sea becomes full of life and the air around it blooms. So just maybe, just maybe, in the resurrection, there's hope, even for Sodom. The symbolic place of judgment can be brought back to life in God. And whatever the case, whether by fire or by grace, it reminds us that the heart of God is for restoration. That God is not a finicky God or a prickly God. God's not an arbitrary God. I can't say God is never angry when, God's, when Abel's blood cries out to him. God listens. And yet it's the anger of a good father who weeps over Jerusalem and the anger of a loving mother who wants nothing more than for all her children to come home. God's heart is always to restore. In one way or another, the restoration of God will come. And that's our good news for this morning. One way or another, the restoration of God will come. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.